The Help Show is a podcast dedicated to connecting individuals to mental health resources in the community. The Help Show is more than a podcast. It is a movement focused on change. Our objectives are to change the perception and stigma associated with mental health, encourage those with mental health disease to get help, foster access to mental health resources, and remove barriers to mental health resources, including those encountered in undeserved communities. We remain committed to supporting the mental health needs of the community during the COVID-19 pandemic. the world has changed dramatically in a short period of time the help show is here to help and navigate through the changes and address your mental health needs seek help when needed if distress impacts your daily life for several days or weeks talk to a clergy member counselor or doctor or contact s-a-m-h-s-a helpline at 1-800-985-5990 The crisis worker will work to ensure that you feel safe and help identify options and information about mental health services in your area. Your call is confidential and free. Did you know, according to the TexasTribune.org, people of color made up 95% of Texas population growth and Hispanic and white populations are nearly equal size, but white voters will have disproportionate control of elections under the state's new political maps. According to thehealthpeople.org, only 28% of Americans have worked with their fellow citizens to solve a community problem within the last 12 months. According to measureofamerica.org, the 2020 youth disconnection rate is 12.6%, which are between ages 16 to 24, and they're not working. Building better communities can sometimes be challenging tasks. You have to implement healthcare rules and regulations that benefit us all, and cultivate relationships that can get the job done. It starts with the neighborhood involvement and business outreach. Each one of us has a prominent place in our neighborhoods, so let's start today and make some changes. My guest today is Jane Hope Hamilton, a candidate in the May 24th runoff primary for the Democratic nomination to succeed Eddie Bernice Johnson as representative to the U.S. Congress from Texas 30th Congressional District. Jane Hamilton's resume shows deep connection to the Democratic politics in the state of Texas. She has served in the key staff and advisory positions for Texas House Representative Helen Giddon for the U.S. former Congress Representative Martin Frost. She serves as both campaign manager and as chief of staff for the U.S. Congressman Mark Vetsy from Texas 33 District. As if that isn't enough, Jane somehow found time to serve on the boards of numerous civic and education organizations, including Annie's List, the Dallas County Election Advisory Council. Jane is the founder and current president of the Barbara Jordan Leadership Institute, an organization I especially want to ask about during this next hour. With more than two decades of experience in public policy, electoral politics, and community organizing, Jane Hamilton's entire career centers around progressive activism for the benefit of the undeserved communities. She has been encouraged to run for Texas 30th congressional seat by stiller cast of business, religious, and civic leaders, as well as the key elected officials and community organizers. Jane Hamilton, welcome to The Help Show. I'm honored to meet someone with such impressive credentials in both grassroots and institutional politics. Welcome to The Health Show. Thank you, thank you for having me here. (laughs) Thanks for being here, thanks for being here. So, 
I want to know, everyone, everyone wants to know, the listeners want to know, how did Jane Hamilton get involved in politics? Wow. Well, uh, you know, I think like many of us, growing up, you know, we observe things. And, you know, when you're a youth, you have a lot of questions about your community and why things happen the, the way that they do. Right. And, you know, I was that same young girl with many questions. Okay. And the more I learned in school about government and um, sort of uh, disenfranchised communities, the answer became very clear that the people that we elect to represent us have such a huge effect on our daily lives. Absolutely. And so um, I knew then at a, at a pretty young age that I wanted to affect change Right. Uh, for my family, for those in my community, for my loved ones, for my friends. And that's what got me interested in policymaking. But I didn't have a connection, right? I didn't have, like, you know, the family that was connected and that had the hookups and, you know, yeah. oh, you know, get you an internship in such and such office. So yeah. I had to find my own way. Mm -hmm. And the answer for me was electoral politics. Mm -hmm. That was my entryway into um, you know, meeting people who were elected officials. Okay. And that's how I got my start. I worked on a campaign and as they say, the rest is history. Oh wow, oh, wow. So how do you connect building better communities with the life of politics? You know, look, you can't have one without the other. Yeah. You know, it's impossible. Uh, a lot of people, you know, especially in marginalized communities, tend to say things like, you know, I don't get into politics. Yeah. You know, that's not uh, something that uh, I feel uh, is, is for me. Okay. But the truth is everyone is involved in politics. If you're a teacher, you're in politics. Absolutely, absolutely. You know what I mean? If you are a police officer or a firefighter, if you are a business owner, yeah. you don't ever get away from politics. And so um, my attitude has been, let's go straight to the source, right? Absolutely. And so building better communities has everything to do with politics because in order to um, elect people who represent you, you have to vote. And that's politics. It's interconnected. They're very related in this country. We've got two paths to change. Yeah. We can either litigate, that's in a court of law, yeah. or we can legislate, and that's in the halls of power. And so the choice for uh, my life and, and wanting to affect change and uh, be a part of realizing that change, the path for me was clear. Absolutely, absolutely. So why is it important to have diverse landscape of assistance? Um, in what way? Um, let me see. Just from your perspective, like where um, I'm just curious as to, because that's a, that's a huge, there are a lot of different ways to answer that, but. Okay, so answer it. I feel like you have some context. No, no, so I'm just, no, no. I'm just The landscape, and when you talk about the landscape, you mean a political landscape? Yes. And you mean in terms of adversity and opponents? Correct. Okay. Um, I would say status quo 
has never benefited African-Americans. And I'm someone who's never accepted the status quo. It started off from a young age, you know, when your parents say, oh, it's just because I said so. I'm the child that's like, but why? And my why never ended, right? Mm -hmm. It carried me into adulthood. It is here today. The status quo for African-Americans, you know, feels like, it looks like, and it is, uh, unfortunately, our reality of, the fact that we deserve better, that our communities deserve better. We don't have to accept failed public schools that our tax dollars are paying for. We don't have to accept uh, poor healthcare systems, lack of healthcare. We don't have to accept police brutality. We don't have to accept things being the way they are. And so when you wanna push against the status quo, you do have to stand up and you have to be counted and you have to make sure that your voice is heard and you got to get in the game you got to put some sweat equity you got to put some skin in this you know and as a people you know i do think and and we're we're having a, a new generation i think of activism that is being sparked right now but we can't forget where we came from and we cannot forget how um great and powerful and strong uh, African-Americans and Hispanics have been in the face of adversity, right? The people that have uh, decided to stand up in the face of adversity are the ones that have carried us into freedom that we never thought we could have, you know, the ability and the uh, right to vote uh, for women, the right to choose and have reproductive freedom, right? And for people of color, the right to integrate our schools. Those are all things that had we not stood up in opposition to the status quo, we wouldn't have it today. And now we find ourselves fighting for some of these same rights all over again. In Texas, we're on the front lines of the battle. Every single thing that you could possibly think of, the fight is here in Texas. And so we are people that actually really need to stand up together as a collective uh, and say that Texas is better than uh, what we are, are, are sort of being you know, forced into, right? right. Texas is, is better than uh, voter suppression. It is, Absolutely. right? right. Um, we should all have a voice. We should all be able to cast a ballot. Um, Texas is better than failing public schools and you know not standing up and fighting for our children. Texas is better than having a governor who doesn't want to expand Medicaid. But if we don't speak up as people in our communities, then our voices won't be heard. And so we have to stand up in the face of adversity. Absolutely, we realize it is not acceptable. It's not acceptable. At all. That's correct. Yeah. So. How do you feel about competing in a district that was held by iconic black women? Yes, you know, uh, it's really interesting, right? Uh, Because Eddie Bernice Johnson, um, she is iconic, right? Um, She is the thing that is made up of of legends, right? She was the first African-American woman to serve as a member of Congress uh, in this seat. I mean, as a matter of fact, the seat was drawn for her pretty much, right? Um, and so this this time right now, when we are in a runoff and we are, uh, you know, 
almost an early vote. Early vote is May 16th through the 20th and election day is May 24th. But in this place right now, this is history. You know, who is going to uh, represent this congressional district and what kind of standards should we hold them to? Should we, you know, want them to have experience in Congress? Should we want them to have a track record of results? You know, should we want them to um, be uh, someone of integrity? Absolutely. Uh, should we want them to, uh, you know, be someone that has really shown and proved that uh, they're a fighter, but not just a fighter, a fighter that can deliver results? Absolutely. And I think the answer to all of those questions is yes. And I think that. Uh, anyone who has decided to run for this seat, that's the floor, that's the bare minimum. And uh, I'm just you know, blessed and proud to say that I have such a track record and I've been here since 2000 on the ground, working in the community. A lot of people have said, you know, how, how is it that I don't know you? But uh, my work has never been about who knows me. You know, we live in a time right now where politics has really turned into a celebrity culture, yeah. you know, and it's, it's, it's unfortunate because branding is something that people pay for, yeah. but your body of work is your own, yeah. right? Yeah. And so we really have to get back to a place where we don't feel like the people that are elected leaders are celebrities, right? Yeah. They're our partners. And that's, as voters, that's what we should require. Um, I'm running against someone right now who doesn't have a district office. She's a first term state rep. She's the only representative in North Texas that does not have a district office, never bothered opening one up. So uh, I think that you know people should uh, take heed to that. Accessibility is key. If someone, you're seeing someone on TV a lot, but you can't necessarily reach them, yeah. I think that's a problem. Uh, so those are things that, you know, when we talk about um, the Congresswoman that came before, there are a lot of things that uh, I do believe have been done well. And there are also things that we need to approve upon. And I think accessibility and for constituents to know where the office is, for constituents to understand that's their office. Absolutely. It's their ta tax dollars. Absolutely. And that uh, the job of a member of Congress is to help inform their constituents about resources, federal government resources that are here for them. And it's also our job to serve as the uh, as electeds to serve as a partner to the constituent. And I very, I very much look forward to being able to do that. I have a a very clear vision of what um, service looks like and what it should feel like. And, and I don't see enough of it. And so I'm really excited to take my organizing background yeah. into a congressional office to serve the people. Okay. So how do you plan involving the next generation? Because you have this vision. Yeah. And the generation now is very much important. I do it now. I do it every single day. Um, whenever I, can, I have the opportunity to be in front of young people, I take it. Right now, today, this morning, I woke up, got the kids ready. Uh, they had a full day planned. Um, and so they're out, you know, 
playing and doing whatever else they're doing today. Um, I left the house and the first thing I did this morning is I met up with some young people who live in various communities and we knocked on doors because it's important to involve young people, right? right. Um, it's important to involve the generation and the next generation so that they understand what it means to really put democracy in action, Absolutely. right? And so my day started off uh, with gathering some young people and knocking on doors and talking to voters and telling them what's on the line with this election. And then after I did that, I went to a luncheon put on by Ignite. Okay. And uh, I sat with about six uh, young women who were interested in politics and I gave them the real deal. Absolutely. You know, I said, listen, what you see on TV, it's yeah. not real. This is hard work, right? Yeah. You know, we talk about passing legislation, but there's also consist constituent casework, which is a daily, you know, important part of the work that you have to do. Absolutely. And I, you know, really advise to all of them, if you think you want to be in policy, if you uh, feel like you want to be elected official one day, start on the ground, start in a campaign, volunteer your time, knock on the door, call people. And then that way you get a first look at is the candidate that I'm working for real? Are they gonna keep their promises when, when you were knocking on those doors? Absolutely. And are they gonna keep their promises to the voter, yeah. right? Are they gonna be committed? And that's one thing that I have, right? I'm able to look at all of the people that I've ever worked for. And I have a real, you know, uh, clear, um, uh, I'd say uh, front, front and center perspective and viewpoint of people who I've worked for that are the real deal and those who, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, you can't say the same thing for everyone. But a part of the work that I do, uh, someone referred to me as a political consultant. I've never thought of myself as a political consultant. Every single time I worked for any candidate, I had a conversation with them, right? With Craig Watkins, uh, we talked about criminal justice reform. We talked about the Innocence Project. We talked about, you know, exonerations. And I'm so proud to say that Craig Watkins, who's the first African-American district attorney in the state of Texas, we got him elected in 2006. I was 28 years old when I managed that campaign. That was 10 years before Black Lives Matter movement, right? So here in Dallas County, we have to recognize that we are trailblazers. Before people were, you know, you know, talking about these things, we were living out the problems yes. of when you have a DA that's not serving your community. And so for us, getting Craig Watkins elected was criminal justice reform, and I'm so proud of him, and I'm proud to say that he exonerated 33 people while serving as DA, and that's huge. That huge. You know, I had the opportunity of meeting one of them. His name is Christopher Scott, and he told me about what it was like in the jail when Craig Watkins won. I never heard that story. He said, you know, you could hear people on the different floors and just cheering on because they felt like they had someone that was going to see them. Absolutely. You know, they felt like they had a chance. And when Christopher explained that to me, you know, it just, it just made the work um, that I do Thank you. 
So as you know, the Help Show podcast is focused on disseminating information about healthcare and other social services resources in the minority neighborhoods of Dallas. We've had several episodes discussing mental health resources. In particular, I was happy to see that your campaign website mentions needed mental health enhancements to government programs. Can you please elaborate on your vision for healthcare improvements, especially with respect to mental health? Absolutely. You know, the way I look at mental health is healthcare. And I think we need to talk about mental health in the full holistic approach. Mental health mm. is health. And a lot of times we separate it from healthcare, right? right. Um, but if you're not mentally well, then you're not healthy. Absolutely. And so I think that's the first, first part of it is for us to think about it in those terms. So, you know, if you look at statistics, people who are depressed are two to three times uh, more likely to also be suffering a chronic physical ailment. ailment. Okay. Right? right? So that tells us that there is a correlation, right? Absolutely. With your mental health and your physical health, right? Absolutely. Uh, and what we need to uh, continue to address is making sure that people have health care. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Without health care, how do you take care of your mental health? You can't. What's the answer? You can't. Yeah. And so um, I was very proud as a chief of staff to Congressman D.C. Mm -hmm. to uh, work with him on uh, passing and making sure that the Affordable Health, the Affordable Care Act stayed That's in. Because, you know, one of the things that um, the other side of the aisle did every year is they kind of chipped away at the ACA program. Uh, but what we know is that in... in um, when, when it was first signed, mm -hmm. there was something like 16% uh, of uh, people who were, um, you know, didn't have insurance. And now I think we brought that down to nine and so in 2020. So oh, wow. we are, we're cutting down at those people who are uninsured, but we also think about those underinsured. And so in Texas, we have a lot of people that have insurance, but they're also underinsured. So we got a long way to go. Um, this district uh, and the adjoining district, Congressional 33, have some of the highest numbers and those who are um, uninsured. And we also have a governor who has not <sighs> accepted federal <laughs> funds to expand Medicaid. And so mm -hmm. we just have to continue uh, to fight for health care. Yeah. We also, especially in black and brown communities, have to talk about mental wellness and mental Absolutely. health. And we can't make it something that we don't talk about. We can't make Absolutely. it taboo. Um, we've got to normalize the conversation. We have to normalize the conversation in schools. We've got some of the highest rates that we've ever seen of young people committing suicide. Yeah. And so we have to have these conversations. We gotta save our babies. We gotta save our, our, um, our older people and, and really, that job is really dependent on what happens with healthcare in the United States. So there's a lot of work to be done. Okay. So let me touch on another subject um, that is of special interest with min sure. the minority communities, that of criminal justice and po uh, policing reform. Can you elaborate on your vision for the reform needed in these areas? Specifically, how do you improve the system while balancing the need of social justice on one hand and neighborhood security on the other. Right. Well, look, I mean, um, there's no question that um, 
our security is paramount, is we need to be safe and secure in our homes and in our schools. Um, everyone deserves that and everyone needs that. And so we know that there is a place for uh, policing, right? Yes. And we know that um, public safety is, is absolutely necessary. And so, um, you know, with that in mind, we should also understand that um, they are here to protect and serve us. Absolutely. And that people who do not do that ought to be held accountable. So I think we need to do more in the way of community policing, having conversations around what that looks like, making sure that uh, we feel safe in our homes, yeah. right? When we think right. about both and John, who was such an amazing person and the fact that uh, we lost him much too soon, you know, his parents being in St. Lucia and, you know, sending him here. He went to school in the States. He lived here in Dallas, worked for PricewaterCoopers. I mean, you couldn't, you know, ask for more yeah. of, uh, of a young African-American black man. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that his life was cut short yeah. um, is, is unfortunate and it's sad. And as someone, uh, myself, being the survivor of police brutality, I can speak firsthand what went wrong. You know, I can speak firsthand from experience. This is my lived experience. Mm. Having been pulled out of my car mm. and dragged across the sidewalk mm. and beaten and thrown in jail mm. and charged with harassment of a public servant, which in Texas is a felony. Hmm. How many people can afford to beat back that charge? Absolutely not me. Right? Yes. How many people can afford over $20,000? Yeah. You know, it took me two years to fight that. How yeah. many people have the ability to do that? Right. That's what we have to make sure that, you know, we uh, stand up against, that we speak out against. Absolutely. And that we hold elected officials accountable for their part in, in making sure that we don't have any more victims. And unfortunately, we see it every single day. So when we talk about criminal justice reform and we talk about police reform, we have to understand that it's affecting the daily lives of people that we know, people that we will never hear about. And we, got, we have to get from a place of where this is normalized. We've almost become desensitized Absolutely. Um, to the suffering of people in our community. Um, and so, you know, I, I do, I've talked to uh, T-Hop, they call him in the uh, Black uh, Police Association. Mm -hmm. And he's one of those people that is constantly talking about this and bringing people into the studio to talk about these issues and I'm thankful for that because that's what it's gonna take. It's gonna take our police of color yeah. um, to, to, to be the, on the front lines Absolutely. of really correcting this, uh, this relationship between our communities and the police. Uh, and I'd say also, you know, look, and I talked about this earlier, in Dallas, we're doing our work on this. We're on the front lines. You know, we are trailblazers. Absolutely. When we talk about criminal justice reform, um, having led the campaign in 2006 when we flipped the county and turned it from uh, red to blue, blue from yeah. Republican to Democratic and yeah. elected the first African-American district attorney mm -hmm. in this state was huge. You know, electing all of the African-American judges that came along with him on that ticket was huge when we talk about criminal justice reform because this is what we know. Absolutely. When you go to court and you stand in front of one of those judges, they actually see you, right? Yeah. 
And we have to understand that when we don't vote, we cannot make a change in the courts. Absolutely. If you don't go vote, you can't make a change in the courts. So you, you and your community, oh, I'm not into politics, I'm not into voting. Well, guess what? That means that if you have a chance to change that family court, Absolutely. if you have a chance to change that misdemeanor court, Absolutely. right? The you chance you have is by going to vote. Absolutely. And not. if you decide to give up your constitutional right, then you're responsible for the, your own damage. Absolutely. You're not Everybody has to take responsibility. As I run this race for Congress and I'm in this runoff, I had five people who had name recognition. I had none. Yeah. And I was up against $2.3 million that came in from a cryptocurrency billionaire. Hmm. Right? Right. And I'm just calling my friends, raising money, and the people <laughs> I know through the state, right? Like, right. hey, I need some money, I need to walk, right. you know? But this is the thing. I'm gonna leave it all on the line, huh. right? Right. And that's what we have to do as individuals. What are you doing to change your circumstance? I tell people all the time, I'm not running for Congress to tell you I have all the answers. I'm running for Congress to be a partner. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So that the information that I have, you'll have. Absolutely. The work that, that I need to do, we'll do it together. together. Absolutely. The things that our community needs, we're gonna work on it together. Absolutely. And I always say that if you've gone through a problem, mm. you know, I was once a single mother, <laughs> and having been a single mother, I can tell you about healthcare needs and housing needs and childcare needs. Mm. Having been a survivor of police brutality. I can tell you every single thing that went wrong from A to Z, right? right? So when we look at the George Floyd Act that's in Congress that did not pass, I can say I'm going to Congress because we gotta end chokeholds. We gotta ban that. Yeah. Qualified immunity, no. Yeah. No knock warrants, gotta go. Absolutely. Right? You have to elect people that share your value system. And if you don't go vote, then you are as responsible as your oppressor. Absolutely. Point blank. Point, point, point. We, have, we have two more minutes. Full stop, in and period. <laughs> yeah, one more question. Okay, one more question, one more question. Sure. Okay. So before November election, of course, the Democratic nomination for the 30th district would be decided by the primary to be held on May 24th. Yes. You've garnered the second highest number of voters in the regular primary, and now you're in second person runoff. Tell me what distinguishes you, your candidacy and your position from those of your runoff opponent. I noticed, for example, that you both claim Barbara Jordan as an inspiration, and you both list essentially the same priorities in your political visions for the future. How should the voters in the May 24th runoff choose between you? You know, my grandmother used to always say, she called me Missy. Okay. Or she'd say, Jane Hope, you know? Yeah, yeah. Talk is cheap. Huh. And that's. That's a distinguishment, yeah. you know, talk is cheap. Yeah. And so I think that people who are gonna vote, you know, you don't need to look at who's endorsed us. And I mean, okay, you know, we can talk about that, right? Yeah. I've got some great endorsements like Ron Kirk, the first African-American mayor and ambassador, mm. you know, Congressman Mark Vesey, Commissioner John Wally Price, mm. Diane Ragsdale, Wendy Davis, and mm. I can go on and on. Yeah. These are people who've seen me 
do this work in the community since I was 21 years old. Mm. This is home. Mm. I'm dedicated. I'm committed. And the difference is that I have a record. So this race is coming down to my opponent's rhetoric versus my results. Absolutely. What are the fruits of your labor, mm. right? Yeah. What have you done? What are your deliverables? I'm happy to talk about some of mine. We talked about 2006. When we talk about criminal justice reform. We walked that out at the doors. Yeah. We were the change that we wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And at 28 years old, having such a huge responsibility, that wasn't easy, right? You're keeping people around you motivated, yeah. right? You gotta raise money for the ticket. You gotta keep the candidates motivated. Absolutely. And you have naysayers the whole time through, right? Mm -hmm. But we won. In 2008, when Wendy Davis ran against Kim Brimer in Tarrant County, people told her she couldn't win, mm -hmm. but we won. In 2010, I managed a campaign with Clay Jenkins, and people said we couldn't win, and we won. Absolutely. In 2012, I managed a campaign of Congressman V.C. People thought that, you know, there was no way he'd win, and we won. And most recently, I was the statewide director for President Biden during the presidential primary, and we all knew how that looked. Yes, we do. We had a lot of great candidates. Yes. Uh, and, you know... The road wasn't easy, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we were right up against Super Tuesday and we didn't know what was gonna happen. Was Biden gonna actually clinch the nomination? Mm -hmm. I put my head down and I worked hard, mm -hmm. you know, all across this state. And I do believe that hard work is really what it takes, right? You can't let people tell you what you can't do, what you are not gonna do, because if you listen to them, then you do nothing. At all. And you have to understand that and you gotta hold that to be as true as it is. So when we talk about distinguishing between candidates, we're talking about someone who's on TV, extremely celebrity driven, yeah. versus myself, Absolutely. whose name a lot of people didn't know before I got into this race. I had to take the time to educate the voter, to do all I can to say, this is me and this is my body of work. Having sued Greg Abbott twice in 2011 mm. to protect our voting rights. Mm. And I won twice mm. with 14 other plaintiffs, mm. helping to work with those plaintiffs, helping to raise the money. Because we have to understand that the governor, hmm. right? Yeah. They use our tax dollars to disenfranchise us. Absolutely. But when you sue somebody, mm -hmm. you gotta raise your own money to do it. Yeah. So I've got all kinds of stats, I've got a record, and I'm proud of my work. And what I truly believe is this, I do the hard work and God provides the increase. Mm -hmm. And that's my life story. Jane, please give us some words of encouragement. Keep going, mm. you know, uh, keep going. Mm. and. You don't always have to have the answers. You don't even have to know what the other side looks like, but you have to keep going, right? You can't stop and you can't allow for doubt to take over, right? Yeah. My middle name is Hope, yeah. but hope is active. Yeah. You know, hope is nothing when you're not moving yeah. and when there's no action. Absolutely. And so that is what my driving force is. I do understand my purpose mm -hmm. in this life is to help people, and I've been doing that mm -hmm. uh, for a very long time. I can't remember a time in my life when my life was not about helping people. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I just tell people all the time, mm -hmm. keep on oh. pushing. Yeah. Keep going. Don't stop. Like Diddy used to say, can't stop, yeah. won't stop. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, take that. <laughs>
Well, I want to say thank you so much. Thank you. Um, with interviewing with the Help Show, um, I'm for you. Thank you. Do it. Yep. Okay. All right. I appreciate you. Watch your head. Oh, the Help Show wants to thank all of our partners, Next Generation Action Network, Good Coworking, Auckland Research Associate, NJI Holding, and Taylor Penguin. We'd like to take a moment and thank everyone in our listening audience for listening today. We'd also like to remind everyone that we are a nonprofit organization operating entirely off the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to give to our organization, we appreciate you. You can send your donation via Cash App, Money Sign, The Help Show, or on our website at www.thehelpshow.org. There's no donation too small. Every dollar given will strengthen our efforts. If you'd like to donate $1,500 or more and become a VIP sponsor, then we have some additional packages listed on our website. And you can visit us at www.thehelpshow.org for more details.